0: We're talking to some people who said there was a a, a legend associated with the place, and then maybe you could help us. What do you mean, unusual? Well, you know, the sort of usual, unusual walking nightmare monster. Oh, that old thing. You mean people have seen it before? Oh, my, yes. If you're talking about the new Galleria over on Vista Avenue, you're talking about the phantom of Curtis Marsh. The phantom, eh?
1: Well, only if you believe in phantoms. Actually, it's the Curtis Zombie.
0: Zombies, eh? Now you're talking my language. I failed to see the distinction between a phantom and a zombie. Well, okay, your phantom is your basic ghost-like phenom, and your everyday zombie is your walking around dead kind of creep, made of real flesh, albeit decayed. Really? Yeah. Now, why did the Curtis... Rise from the grave.
1: They always have to have a reason. Well, it all started when old Cornelius Curtis was murdered back in 1837. Come on, I'll show you something that will interest you.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Dan, your main host, episode 88 of Eventually Super Train. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the Short-Lived TV Show podcast. We go through generally three short-lived TV shows at a time, one episode at a time. In this episode, and eventually we will cover Super Train, by the way. In this episode, we are covering episode 3 of Rex Stout's Narrow Wolf from 1981. Episode 7 of Shadow Chasers from the end of 1985. And episode 38, oh boy, of Bourbon Street Beat from June of 1960. Tim Turner and Mitchell Hadley will be joining me. And I think you're going to enjoy yourself, Probably. How do I know? I'd like to say you will, though. So please, listen and enjoy. I'll see you at the end. Episode 3 of Rex Stout's Nero Wolf, 1981. This uh, episode, Before I Die. Original air date January 30th, 1981. Directed by Edward M. Abrams. Teleplayed by Alfred Hayes. And in this one, uh, we see... Well, it starts with two gangsters uh, meeting in a junkyard. And one of them returns the other one's daughter, who they kidnapped then we learn that the daughter goes to see wolf and archie and it turns out she's not really this gangster's daughter she's a pretend daughter because the gangster's kind of never really properly met his daughter sort of the daughter's never really met the gangster and he just kind of ha- hires the daughter on you know um why not so um and uh, she wants to leave town. She wants to get out of there. Uh, unfortunately, she's involved in a drive-by shooting uh, with Archie soon after that. And then, unfortunately, the gangster who comes to talk to Archie about his daughter being involved in the drive-by sh- His daughter, I put in quotes, being involved in the drive-by shooting. He gets killed in a drive-by shooting. But then, uh, eventually, the actual daughter shows up with her fiance, who's a law student in tow they're going to go away but um archie and wolf um bring uh them to wolf's brownstone and the reason why they do this is because after the gangster dies wolf learns that he has become sort of the um ward of the actual real daughter so he has to find her find out where she is and get her there so the will can be read and things like that but someone did kill the fake daughter and the dad and then someone tries to kill the real daughter. Is it one of the other gangsters? Or is it somebody else? I don't know. Let us uh, let me give you a little blast of this. And then uh, Tim and I are on the other side. That was a little plot breakdown you just heard. And I have with me here the great and mighty Tim Turner. Mr. Tim, how are you today? Hey, Dan. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Ready, ready to chat some more uh, uh, Nero Wolf. Uh, And, well, let's... Hey, let's dive right in, shall we? Yeah! What did you think (laughs) of Before I Die? Well, you
3: know, it's funny. So far, I think the... uh, This is, I think, our third episode of the actual series after doing that uh, pilot film. Um, It it, it seems to kind of go up and down in quality. And I actually enjoyed this one. Uh, I didn't really care for the previous one we did that much. But uh, this one's actually got... Not, not so much the mystery per se but lots of great character faces and some great lines between say uh, you know Nero and uh, Theodore uh, in this one in particular um, and uh, I found it I found it pretty enjoyable
2: uh you know you know what's I when we started, and I know, oh, so long ago, we're in episode three. Um, but, <laughs> but, but when we started, especially since we're on like what episode thirty-eight of Bourbon Street Beat with this episode, holy mackerel! Um, uh, but when I started, I, I was I was a little iffy that Conrad, horsley team up. The more I watch them, the more I like them together. I um, me too. I it's it's interesting because I still in my mind they're still not. One hundred percent, sort of where I I think of Wolf and Archie as being, what they sort of what their characters are like. I still I still go more towards the Mori and Tim Hutton kind of thing, but I I'm, sure. I am I am quite warming to them. Now, granted, I'm I'm not huge on uh, Saul Panzer in this, and um, uh-huh. you know uh, you know and Inspector Kramer, uh, although his sidekick in this episode is pretty awesome. We could we can yes. imagine that, um, but. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I yeah, I'm, I'm a little iffy because I, I think the thing, like I, I may have said before, like Inspector Kramer to me is um, he's a competent cop who's who's always bothered by Wolf, and he's got kind of um, to to me I don't, I don't I don't know if a fun side is what you're looking for, but he's a little less sort of the, the Kramer in this one <laughs> feels feels more sort of I don't know bureaucratic is that the word I want? He's he's less he's less like it looks like he's never had fun in his life.
3: <laughs> where,
2: <A good> call. <laughs> where, whereas Kramer, as sort of I think of him, is having fun and like as much as he hates Wolf getting in the way, Wolf gets the job done, and so you know he kind of rolls with it. And um, but but apart but but Wolf and, Wolf and Archie, I, I'm warming to them in these in these roles here. I think I think Lee Horsley in particular is pretty darn good in this. Like when he goes to visit the real daughter. Um, and his scene when the mobsters try to like push him around out in the street kind of thing. I think, I think he's handled himself pretty well. Um, and I, um, I think, I think the, 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 <laughs> the, one issue I had with this one is that I hadn't read the short story in a while. And I hadn't seen the episode, the other Nero Wolf, uh, cause they covered this on the, on the, the Tim Hunton one. Um, yeah. so I hadn't seen that in a while, so I couldn't, and they, and they take a lot of liberties with the story in this one. Um, a few of which I wasn't so thrilled with and and one of the things that happens though with the liberties they take is I got like just because sort of the way it's structured and kind of the way it's done and how it sort of presents itself almost like okay there are these mobsters and then there are these mobsters and in a drive-by the mobster's daughter got killed and then in another drive-by the mobster got killed and it wasn't until like two-thirds of the way in that it occurred to me that wait a minute I don't think the mobsters did it. So there's this weird kind of feeling in my head, like <laughs> I was just thinking, like, okay, this is like a mobster-related thing, and we're trying to solve something. And um, oh no, wait, that's not what it is. That's that's this is it's actually like a regular murder mystery. So it's kind of they're diddling around, and I, I won't I won't go fully into the way it works, but I think. I think in the in the in the Maury Chicken one, um, the the gangster whose daughter he is he's having trouble with is played by Seymour Cassell, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong on that, but I, th- mm. I think I think he is. Yeah, they, they take some liberties in that. In the original the original story is set uh, I, I want to say late '40s, early '50s during like a meat shortage, and Wolf calls in this gangster to cook and get him black market beef or something like that, and the gangster says I'll help you if you help me with my daughter who's not really my daughter. Um, and this one kind of it takes some liberties, and and I I think by time it's it's one of those episodes of, of TV where by time you get to the end, I think it's been a satisfying hour. But there are a few moments in like the I mean there's there's just this thing where it's like how many times can you be standing with someone at the side of the street and have a drive by occur? You know it it it, yeah. it it ends up looking a little foolish when it happens to Archie twice in like like literally there's a drive there's drive by shooting he's to the police. He's he comes back from the police station. Then there's another drive-by shoot. I mean, that's bad luck.
3: Not to mention the fact that I it, it happened in the first episode of the series too. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so overall, I think um I I am I'm, I'm not um I'm not incredibly enamored of the liberties they took with the story. I, I kind of get what the, 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 it's tricky because. Uh, with in the novels and the short stories it's it's all it's from archie's point of view um, but here they keep throwing in these little scenes that aren't and the opening sequence the pre-credit sequence in this really cool like junkyard um uh with returning the fake daughter of course they don't you know the, the other guys don't know she's a fake daughter but it's it seems a little redundant or weird to me um i'm not sure why that's there and i think that kind of threw me off into thinking oh it's a mob thing and then two thirds of the way through I was like oh no it's a regular murder thing okay I got confused but it's not um <laughs> it's 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 definitely worth a watch it's certainly better than the last episode with the guy getting shot on the doorstep and the the, the, the... so i th- I think this is a, this is a sort of a <laughs> it, if it can if it can go along in this route uh, I'd be pleased I think watching it yeah i i th-
3: I think it, it uh <laughs> You have to accept it as that it's a, you're talking early 80s uh, a TV version of a classical character as opposed to, say, like the Timothy Hutton, Maury Chaikin, where they were able to be more expansive mm. and lavish and have it in the period, you know, etc. Um, but, uh, you know... Well, first of all, uh, talking about uh, you're referencing uh, Inspector Kramer and how he may never have had fun a day in his life. <laughs> um, he his character really really reminds me of uh, Doctor Aston from Quincy. Mm. You know, he's mm-hmm. got the, the yeah. sourpuss demeanor all the time, and it's always Quincy, let it go. You know, <laughs> and it's the same kind of attitude, even though I mean, you know, Qu- you know. Uh, Wolf's not obviously not working for him, but um, I there's there's to me the the stuff in this episode is great. I, I, I like uh, Ra- Ramon Bieri um, as Crown the mobster, mm-hmm. uh, it, which is interesting because he's a guy who it seems like if you look at his IMDb, it's like everything is sheriff this and mm. captain that. <laughs> yeah. But but he's a good mobster for uh, what yeah. he's you know given to do and the uh, the director was Edward Abrams uh and he did a lot of mystery television. Mm-hmm. Um he directed a couple episodes of Columbo, um Short Fuse, and the Most Dangerous Match. Oh, wow. It, yeah. yeah. And um I you know I I think he does it, it pretty good uh work with this. So, like he did pretty good work on on that show. Um I, I can we can we talk about about um <laughs> uh Inspector Kramer's uh sidekick?
2: Yes, please do.
3: Yeah, it was – I was just sitting there watching, and I was like, holy crap, it's Russ Tamblyn. Yes, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he was at that low point in his career where he wasn't getting as much work mm-hmm. Um, because it's not a big role. He's not really yeah. showcased in any way. And matter of fact, his character, if you go to IMDb, his character is police detective. Yes.
2: It's weird. It's almost uh, like oh, – oh, I'm sorry.
3: Oh, no, uh, I, I was just kind of going through my notes of, uh, you know, the actors in here. Um, uh, Kale Brown, um, who plays Paul Shane, one mm. of our suspects, uh, he really the whole time, he, he came off to me like a poor man's Ted Bessel. Mm. Uh, I, I kept thinking, uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah. where's, uh, what's her face, but um, from my girl, but or <clears throat> that girl. Yeah, um,
2: yeah. Oh, Marlo Thomas, sure, yeah,
3: yeah, Marlo Thomas, yeah, um, and I, I love does, the fact yeah. that H.M. Winant is in
2: this. Yes. Oh, I love H.M. Winant, yeah.
3: Yes, another. Like, I like. I, I like to call them great character faces because mm-hmm. uh, he's definitely got one of those mugs that yes. just stands out. And uh, the it, the thing that I his career kind of like tapered off, but it, it's been so great that Larry Blamire, um, yes. Has included him in things like Dark and Stormy Night and Last, mm-hmm. uh, Lost Skeleton Returns again. Yes. Um, and it's a shame that he hasn't got he didn't you know he had such a long stretch of time I think like twenty years where he wasn't getting a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he but he's so good he's he, he's yeah. really good as, as uh, uh, Eddie Meeker in this thing mm-hmm.
2: the mobster other mobster. Yeah, and and the, the and the scene in well, we won't go too too deep into the end, but yeah, the scene in, the, the, you know the scene in the end where Wolf calls them all together. There's some great um, uh, stuff between Hm Winant's character and the other, the second in command mobster guy. I want to say his name is is yes. Fabian or what is his name? Uh, Harry Fabian. Yeah, it is Fabian. Okay, for a second I thought I made that up, but no, yes, yep. Yeah. And, and there's kind <laughs> of a nice there's kind of some nice tension uh, there and. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, there are a lot of great faces here. And the thing with Russ Tamblin's performance is that if, if this were a show that it was in its, like, fifth or sixth season, I could be, it's, I could see it being something like, you know, Russ Tamblyn saying, look, um, you know, my kids want me to be on uh, Nero Wolf. So just give me a little roll. I'll stand in the back. It won't matter. But when yeah. you see him in the back of this, you expect him to do, it's, it's like, um, it's like when he shows up in the uh, Al Adamson film Dracula vs. Frankenstein for like yes. five minutes, and he just shows up as a biker out of a different movie. He, like Satan yeah. sadists, and he just yeah. shows up and he's like, "What is he doing here?" And then he does his shtick, and then he's gone. You know? And it's,
3: well, he, I, yeah. I, honestly, I, as soon as I saw tamblin he's standing. He's he's behind Kramer most of the time. Yes. And he, he, is, I kept expecting that he was a dirty cop because he mm. kept his, doing like this shifty eyed. Yeah. Looking left, looking right, with his eyes really half closed, and I was like, <laughs> okay, so clearly he's in on the, you know, the the, the killings or whatever, yes. you know. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> no, no, he's, he's not. Just, he's just got a very minor role. Yeah. just just there. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you uh, one of the best things in this episode, and and one of my favorite things so far uh, in watching this series is anything that has to do with interaction between Wolf and Fritz and Theodore. Mm. uh they really as it goes on you see they they really really mix it up Mm -hmm. and have some great lines um where you know like at the end uh with the you know uh theodore cuts one of wolf's favorite orchids Mm -hmm. and, and gives it to elaine and um and you can see, and he just has this pained look on his face and and, and then they get in this argument about the pronunciation
2: mm-hmm. it's oh, this yes. yeah, ba, yeah. Yes. Ba, you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's a uh, uh, yeah it's it's yeah they're developing some nice i mean it's you look at this you you think it's got to be really annoying to work for wolf cuz he's, just, oh, he's just he's always you get, he hires the be- you cuz you know he hires the best and yet he's constantly arguing with them about what they do, and oh yeah, uh, he's
3: always correcting them uh, on everything.
2: Yes, yes, from the yeah, from the the smallest spice to the the um, how to talk to. I think that's in a later episode, like how to talk to the uh, the orchids kind of thing.
3: Oh yes, um, this does have one line of dialogue, however, that just <laughs> killed me. I actually laughed out loud because it was because it was so bad, so badly written. <laughs>
2: oh boy, let me hear. Let me hear.
3: And it's our, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, our villain—I'm not going to give away who it is because I know we don't—we don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. If we—if we can help it, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our 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 killer is revealed, and he stands up and he points at Wolf and says, "You will regret this, you fat, lying, pompous creep."
2: Yep. <laughs> 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 like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> he worked. With, he gave it his best. He really did. But some lines, yeah. some lines are born to um, born to get you. I think it,
3: it, it's really hard to put across a line like that without looking silly. Um, <laughs> um, but then you know. Then they had another line that was really wonderful, where uh, the, the the mobster comes in, uh, Leo Crown, and he says, "Don't move." And and Wolf says, I almost never do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um now I would like to um just just briefly mention the uh, all the shootings in this. Oh god, yeah. Because they're all perpetrated by someone in like an old man. sort of um a, I think I my I, my first one, whenever I see an old person mask, I think of curtains, but this isn't curtains it's more of the yes. slaughter high. A uh, mix of the curtains and Slaughter High yeah. mask, I think. Yeah, that's a
3: good call. Uh, like yeah. l-
2: like the one Marty wore um, when he... Oh, did I just... Sorry, I just spoiled that for uh, everyone who's never seen Slaughter High. Because we get a lot of crossover <laughs> between the big Nero Wolf fans and the um. Yes. The-, the mid-80s <laughs> second-wave slasher fans. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 yeah, the killer in Slaughter High wears more or less, I think, the same sort of mask with like the crazy hair and the old man face that then Marty. Yeah, it's very I did it fabulous. again. There you go. Said it again. Sorry, everyone. You know. It, it um, also kind of looks
3: similar to the killer's mask at the beginning of uh, Terror Train. So.
2: Oh, that's true too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that could be that. That's probably what that is. Yeah, I would think probably whatever that. Brand of masks. That's right. Yeah, these sort of old old guy masks. Yeah, but it's great because the um, I mean, you, you know, shoot shoot them once, you know, shame on me. Shoot them twice, Archie, shame on you. And that third time <laughs> that there's a drive-by is really weird because he, the 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 killer kind of like shoots through the bedroom window where the gal, the the real daughter, is going to stay. But isn't she yes. like two three stories off the ground? Um, you would think. Yeah. It, it, it because the way it's done, it looks like he's like driving there on the ground floor and he's shooting in, but he'd be right. like shooting up into the air, like driving by. To, I mean, I, I can't imagine he's standing in the middle of the street with the old man mask on, firing yeah. to the window. I, I it's it's implied when I watch it that it's another drive by, and this time he shot the window, but he's at least two, if not three. She's at least two or three stories off the ground. I would say yeah. probably I think would think like three. So it's 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 a slightly odd moment that I don't remember being in the original story, and they could have added just to um, oh I could be wrong, um, they could have added just to um, pepper it up, you know, give it a little more danger. <laughs> She's not even That's safe sort of... in Wolf's house, but I do like that immediately upon it happening, he apologizes and they take her to another room. I, I imagine it's like let me take you to a room at the back of the house. Got it. Yeah. Nothing ever happens there. No, that's the this, this, this good part of the house. It's way in the back. So um, w- w- what else What else do you have on this one? I'm scanning my notes. Rustamblin. Hamlin, yes. What else do
3: you have? Uh, Yeah, you know, I'm I, I looking over my notes. The other one, and this is not anything super <laughs> significant, uh, but Meeker's right-hand man, and I don't really – I don't know what his name was, uh, the character – but holy moly, that guy was a human carpet. I mean, the hair, the yes. hair helmet, yeah, and, and the the, the chair, chest hair bursting out of the shirt. Yep. Yep. Um, I, that that was pretty impressive stuff. Um, <laughs> and also, um, Inspector Kramer. They uh, they bring back the running gag of him sitting up yes. in the chair without yes, touching really. the sides, of the, the arms of the chair. Yes,
2: yeah,
3: which uh, yeah. I, I I like that antagonistic. Stuff just anytime, anytime Wolf is 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 irritated, it's entertaining.
2: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I and I am I am I am I have have the episode playing here, and the final scene is on, which I won't talk about too much, except that I like that they're they're I think they're using the space a little better Mm -hmm. in in the office. Like like I felt like in the first two episodes, sort of the space in the office is a little too to me that should be a large expansive room and it felt a little too close here they're kind mm. of using the space better and they're bringing in people through the other door not right. all in through that one door which i found to be awkward so it's kind of i don't i don't know if it was something where like um it's just maybe just a directoral thing. Like I just wanna, I just wanna get a sense of depth to the room. But there's a bit more feeling of a space to it, which I like. Which you need to do. You need to expand the room. It was too claustrophobic, I think.
3: Yeah, and uh, I, I, I figured you might have been uh, happy with the fact that uh, they have him in uh, yellow gold shirts and yes. uh, robes a lot, pajamas.
2: Yes, that's that's it, that. It's just one of those things. I don't mind the facial hair. I I expect William Conrad to to have some of that, but um, yeah, you got to have the yellow shirts definitely.
3: And and honestly, uh, I, I as I've watched because uh, I I just rewatched uh, uh, some more today, and um, I, I God I love Conrad's voice.
2: Yes, you yeah. can
3: see why he he had such a big career in radio mm-hmm. uh, because it's just this deep, rich, commanding voice, and he really, really much like Patrick McGowan. Um, is able to do some stuff with his voice in some of these episodes to really emphasize some lines that are just delightful to listen to.
2: Yeah, I, um, I was going to say, I watched, and I'm just kind of checking here to make sure I'm not being a jerk when I say this, but I've been <laughs> re-watching, um, let's see, oh yes, okay, I've been re-watching, um, uh, I do this about once a year, I re-watch the original Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Mm-hmm. And I watched them. I didn't really watch them that much when I was a kid. This, this was kind of a thing that happened a few years ago. But I have the Blu-rays right here, and I sort of watch them in tandem. So I watch an episode of Galactica, then an episode of Buck, and da da da. And it works great because then when you get to the second season, I do Galactica 1980, and I'm able to uh, <laughs> kind of go through there. And that's what, but I forgot that in the very like in the very early, I think it's the Buck Rogers. Um, uh, William Conrad does a lot of the voices. And uh, A lot of the um, announcements and things like that, which is always great to hear. It's like, oh, my God, Mm -hmm. it's canon. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah. (laughs) And I I think, too, that when you mentioned earlier the actor who played all the sheriffs. Yeah, Ramon um, Bieri. Yes. I would bet you cash money that he probably uh, appeared in, like, three episodes of canon playing some sort of sheriff in, like, a city in the middle, town in the middle of nowhere that canon ends up in. Uh, you know, where he has to solve a crime and, and the, the town is very hush-hush and, you know, that kind of thing.
3: <laughs> very Claude
2: akins esque Yes, yes, yes. Um, when you can't get Claude, you get him. So, uh, Tim, where can we find you online? What are you up to? Uh, well,
3: uh, I'm the co-host of uh, Beauty, the Beast, and the Bees with Kelly Hoboom. Uh, we're on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, we discuss B movies mainly, and uh, uh, we usually have like a lead feature that's something that's in the theater, and, uh, and then we cover a couple of uh, video picks. Nine times out of ten, it, it's something from the 80s and not necessarily good, but, uh, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's still fun. Um, oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> um are, are you anywhere else is there anything else going on are you okay uh, right now as well
3: yeah well we also have a, our, our website mm. that uh, Kelly designed that's at uh, bbnbs.net mm. and uh it, it she did a beautiful job we uh, we actually used a uh, like a, a cover part of a cover of a um, an old uh, sci, science fiction pulp Mm-hmm. for our logo and it's it's beautiful, beautifully designed she did yeah, a great is, job yeah.
2: so i will and uh, thank you again for joining me for some more uh wolf i'm i'm going to end it right here we'll t- we'll talk to you all next time
0: hey,
2: Phantom of the Galleria, Shadow Chasers, Episode 7, December 29th, 1985, written by Peggy Goldman, directed by Alan Meyerson. This one begins in a galleria in a mall in Santa Maria, New Mexico. We see a rather strange, can't quite make out who he is, gentleman petting a rabbit. Then we see the mall is closed and there's a lady walking uh, along, you know, just walking along. All of a sudden, three kind of guys who probably shouldn't be there, um, especially considering the fact that she just left the security guard where these three guys come from, they, they rush at her and they grab her and they pull her into a store and she's going to be in trouble when this big thing shows up and, and basically throws the guys around and saves her. Then we see Jonathan. He is on an archaeological expedition. And uh, Dr. Morehouse calls up and sends him to that mall in order to investigate this. He arrives at the mall and meets up with a friend of his.
0: Oh, oh about your out-of-the-world coincidences is there a chapter in this chance encounter or what just
1: a footnote imagine
0: notes. running into my old amigo in santa maria this place is a grande fiesta amigo taquitas margaritas centuries any kind of eaters
1: you want what are you doing here oh nothing really i'm i'm just here for the day doing a little favor for dr morehouse uh, checking out a reported sighting of uh, of a creature here
0: you must have been calling all over the country for
1: me no i tried you once i left a message on your machine
0: do you have to tell everybody who calls where they can buy your latest paperback merchandising one boy the meal ticket couple pennies a copy gotta pay for the limo what are you doing here uh I've been just visiting a couple of school friends who live here. What, in the mall? No, in the in the burbs. I just came by to uh, pick up a toy for their kid. We, we gotta have dinner with us, Johnsons. You will love them. I'd love to, but hey, no problem. Where are we going first? We'll pick up the toy later. Okay. No, I, well, I I just have to say a little
1: hello to uh, Miss Benson.
2: So they go to visit Emily Benson, who was a previous uh, Miss San Maria, and now is sort of a publicity PR person for the mall. And they talk to her about her encounter with this thing, whatever it was. And we learn that uh, yeah, Jonathan was kind of hauled off his ec- archaeological expedition uh due to benny doing a little uh wackiness you know you know benny's wacky uh we meet the guy who runs the galleria who's like um that uh miss benson is a bit touched and she's a little crazy don't listen to anything she says and we learn that the rabbit died that this thing was seen petting and has strange sores on it you saw the man's hands this thing's hands and they're just all burnt up and and just in not in good shape and um, so they go to visit, um, they go to a nearby uh, train area right near the, the Galleria, and they talk with an engineer there. Uh, well, you heard at the beginning of the story, they're on like a, one of those tiny trades riding along with him, asking him about what's going on, and you heard that minute of them talking. And here um, is the gentleman describing uh, the sort of curse, what's going on um, at the Galleria.
1: This may give you a better idea of what I'm talking about. There's the depot. That's where it happens. So this is how the town used to look then? Yep, and that's the Curtis estate where the mall is now. Now what happened to Cornelius? He was shot to death by a jealous husband. Cornelius and the woman always denied they were anything except friends. But no one ever believed they were innocent until Cornelius returned from the grave to see justice done. Oh, (laughs) well now we've established why he came back because they always have a reason, don't they? (laughs) Was he ever actually vindicated? Depends on how you interpret history, I suppose. The husband turned up face down in the march, and the young widow married Cornelius' brother.
0: Well, now, so if uh, the case was closed, how come old Cornelius is still making the rounds? They say he swore vengeance on everyone
1: responsible for his death.
0: Oh, this story's got everything. Murder,
1: jealousy, adultery, revenge, zombies. You don't actually believe this, do you?
0: That's why we're here, Jack. America wants to know. Engineer Ray, thank you very much for your help. Pleasure. Thank you for the ride. You're welcome. Oh, we gotta get to that mall right away. Oh, what a
1: shame. It'll be closing now.
0: No problem. Emily can sneak us in. We'll call him from my friend's house before dinner. But I haven't even been invited. You haven't been invited? No problem. They don't
2: even know I'm in town. They begin to do more investigation into it. Is it a zombie? Is it some kind of phantom? What is it? It really sort of doesn't seem to be either because Jonathan plays uh, with electric trains and, you know, with it at an electric train store. So, And it's get picked up on an infrared sensor, which a zombie shouldn't and neither should a phantom. So something else might be going on, and Jonathan returns to speak with the engineer, and I'm sorry the uh, the, the couple of sound bites here are really exposition heavy, but they explain it better than I probably could. So he goes to talk with them about the whether or not trains in some way were involved with the story of you know that jerk. What can I
1: do for you? Well, th- this uh, phantom or, or, or zombie whatever it is, he, uh, well, it, likes trains as well. I can't hold that against him.
0: No, I, I don't. I just wondered if trains ever figured in the Curtis family history.
1: No, not really, unless you count the factory. What factory? The Curtis Company factory, whence all blessings flow, not to mention chemicals. Chemicals? What kind of chemicals? Chemicals? That's where the trains come in. The factory was right next to the estate. That's why they built the railroad spur in the first place. To provide freight service for the factory. These properties have been abandoned ever ever since. The uh, Curtis estate and the the factory? Yep. Except for the bows. The bows? Hobos. You know, rail riding vagabonds. From the Depression on, the Curtis place was the county's most popular hobo convention spot. I remember back in... 1963, when they crowned their king, every engineer in the county blew his whistle. Sounded better than a thousand bells. What happened to the hobos after the family left? Nothing. They just stayed on, until the Curtis kids donned away their inheritance and sold out to the Nueva Corporation. Their granddad would roll his coffin if he knew how they treated those poor bows. They're all gone now. Like the dinosaur.
2: I'll just leave it there. What is this being in the galleria. Phantom, zombie? Or some sort of hobo. I don't know. If you know me, you know that one of my favorite films is Titus Moody's uh Last of the American Hobos from the late sixties, Last of the American Hobos. Which is so much fun, and um, does actually have a section in it involving uh, Brit Iowa, Iowa. I think it's Iowa, where they used to have. Maybe they still do the hobo convention for decades, and they would actually crown a king, and when, when they had lady bows there, they would crown a queen of the of the convention, and they would have that stew, it's the Mulgatani stew. I forget the stew that they um, the hobos make, and they would have hobos around, and it's a um, very romantic strange, but not really all that romantic kind of sad and slightly gross life I imagine that the hobos lived. But uh, Last of the American Hobos, Um, you know, it has its, its dark bits here and there, but it's, um, it has its high points. Now, I guess the fact that I'm talking about hobos rather than zombies or phantom means that there's a good chance the Phantom of the Gallery is a hobo. Spoiler. Sorry. You could still watch it. You'll still like it. Uh, I like this episode quite a bit. I think... It's, it, I don't know that it's that interesting to you, but it's interesting to me because when I was a kid, and I've said this before, I had a heck of a time getting into these hour-long drama, action-adventure, whatever, TV shows. I just had a real tough time with them. Because with sitcoms, no matter what the subject was, they just start off by throwing jokes at you. Jokes and jokes and jokes and jokes. Whereas with dramas like this, you know, you get the opening scene... With the the guy the the phantom attacking the guys who are attacking Miss Benson there Emily, and that kind of sets it for a bit. And you're like, hmm, what's going to happen next? But then it really does take quite some time for the episode to really get cooking it's kind of one of those where it's like now we're at the mall now we're at the trains now we're visiting benny's friends we'll talk about that now we're at the mall again now we're do to do now we're do to do and with each bit we learn a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more until the final sequence and uh you know which wraps everything up which begins in the mall and then ends at the trains i could see when i was a kid if, if I hadn't already been invested in the show, I could see myself probably, by the time I got to like the first commercial break, kind of shrugging and going, eh, I'll be okay. I really don't need to um, watch this. Uh, can I just say that the engineer has a scale model of the uh, the town, San Maria, that he points to, and but they never really get that close in on, and I always think whenever I see it that they're referencing back to the future this is this is the end of 85 and back to the future was the top grossing movie of 1985 and it has the um you know um forgive the crudity of the model i didn't have time to build it to scale gag which comes up again in part three when he builds the um the old western town when they're trying to ride the, when they're taking the train um i always think that's what they're doing so they never really dwell too much on the uh, model itself it's like they sort of built the model and we're like, nah, let's not show it. Or they built the model and, um... Or someone else built the model. And they were like, well, we can't really show it or something. I don't know. But, so, so yeah, Benny... Uh, That's how Benny is, is fine the episode. He's, he's his usual self. Uh, Jonathan is... It's interesting, Jonathan has that thing again where, um... He sort of gets uh, gets wistful in ways that Benny doesn't get when he sees trains. He clearly loves trains, and that's sort of what bonds him with the phantom, as uh, the trains, and bonds him with the engineer, too, uh, and leads to the sort of ending. But ben, Benny's mainly after um, his scoop, and like I said, he kind of convinces he's able to get them in there. Jonathan doesn't want to be... But, well, what happens is um, when Dr. Morehouse calls Jonathan, she mentions that she got called by a guy from Vienna, a doctor from Vienna or something like that, who said that they should investigate it. So she's sending him. But, of course, it was Benny pretending to be um doctor, someone or no other from the Heimlich University. It's big laughs. And uh, so that's how they wind up there. And, you know, um, Jonathan is mortified, but he gets into it. Then we have it's, – it's interesting, too, the um, – miss benson emily is is she was miss santa Maria, and she's lovely and and it's it it's her character is slightly strange because she's presented as being like like the the people in charge the jackasses in charge are like yeah she's just a pretty face she's just here to make the place look nice this that and the other and she spends the whole time saying um well i don't want to be just known as a pretty face i'm want to get my next job without um, you know without using my looks and Benny says, yeah me too and, and but there's something weird about like whenever she says that both like Jonathan and Benny are sort of like oh I didn't notice how pretty you were I didn't know and it's sort of like they haven't written her character in a convincing way it's 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 funny like she she she, she doesn't, she, she doesn't suddenly become like Velma and, and get everything, you know, figure out all the clues and figure out what's going on. She basically kind of stands around as Jonathan Benny does everything, saying, the next job I get, I'm not going to get because of my looks. Okay, good luck to you. Uh, but they should have had actions, not words. And I know what you're saying. Dan, you're doing a podcast and all you're doing is talking. Yeah, I'm talking, but I'm, I'm moving around in a chair as I'm talking. I'm having a little bite of this thing here. So I'm moving around. actions. I was hungry, I was moving. no she's a weird character because she's she's lovely, and they at the beginning it's like, oh, she was Miss Santa Maria, but they, they don't play that up, but she keeps bringing that up. and they keep saying, "Oh no, we didn't mm. I'm sorry, it's gross. That's weird. It's, it's just slightly weirdly done like there there might have been more to it originally. But they had to trim some of that out because it doesn't really develop into anything. Um, And even like the fact that, you know, maybe, you know, uh, one of the guys might do a little flirting with it. Yeah, Benny does some flirting. Jonathan doesn't. Benny certainly does. But Benny does his own kind of flirting, which is very special um flirting you know it's 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 um and and she i think she can see that he's doing that and she's she she likes benny she's seen him on murder so she thinks he's a celebrity so maybe he's being a little gross i don't know yeah it's she's an interesting character because she is it starts off just feeling like she's going to be a become a well-developed character she was a beauty queen the mall hired her on to do pr and publicity and she's she believes she's much more than that but at the end of it she hasn't either way she hasn't really proven much of that jonathan and benny have done most of the stuff i mean yes yeah, she does run through the 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 hallways of the mall screaming at the end trying to get the the guy's attention but uh the phantom's attention but mm, so sorry that was a little little too well not she's she's the main lead character the other characters i mean there's the engineer there's the phantom himself there's the jerk who who sort of in charge of them all yeah and he's just a he's just sort of a condescending jerk you you know you know the type and he's um um you know he's the type you know in the end like um you know there's some sort of radiation involved with the death of that rabbit you have to find this phantom and take him out tonight so suddenly like four guys in a van with guns show up and start shooting at everyone it's like what where do you where do you get th- I mean this is yeah all right so so it's you know, it's one of those towns like you see like in the in the short lived show The Master. Like every town that Tim Van Patten and Lee Van Cleef will go into was almost like was like that. There'd be someone in charge of something who'd be able to haul together a group of people who could shoot everyone else in a moment's notice. And the other lead the other lead characters the other lead characters, I guess, are they're only in a few short scenes, but they're Benny's friends who are sort of I forgot exactly what they are, but their whole house is tricked out like it's a jungle because they're going on a jungle adventure, so they want to live like they're in the jungle. And there are snakes, and there's um, primates, and... Jonathan is allergic to them. You hear an elephant. Jonathan falls into a small little pool they have, which seems to be in a very odd place. Um, it seems to be in a comedy place. Have a look at where that pool is, because you basically like walk in through the front door, go through like the main sort of entranceway, breezeway, mudroom, whatever it is, and then there's like a little pool in the ground. And there's a little way to walk around it, but there's a pool and a vine. It just seems to me like that's that's comedy. They put that there for comedy um maybe to keep the kids from running through the room I don't know because you, you, unless they want to run through the pool every time but that just seems a bit weird they are they are scientists though and they do help later on when um they examine a a whistle a train whistle in the train store that the uh, the phantom has blown into to just sort of find out that he's human so uh what else let's see the infrared gun the trains the final sequence the bows it's mm, it's it's an interesting episode, like I said, because I, it's okay to start off with. I mean, some sort of shambling monster in a mall. I mean, this was no, nah, this is a couple of years before what um, Eric's Revenge, Phantom of the Mall, and um, a, I was going to say a lot of other films set in malls. What, what which one am I thinking of? It's Eric's Revenge, Phantom of the Mall. There was an uh, initiation. Well, initiation was a year before this. Initiation was in a mall. Hide and Go Shriek was in that huge furniture store, which is sort of like a uh, chopping mall. It was in 86. So malls were things. Obviously, malls were things that, that popped up in, in horror films and, and, and creepy things. Uh, does Night of the Comet have a mall? I feel like it, it would. I don't know why I've never seen Night of the Comet. I'm a sole Survivor fan, and without a clue, is probably a top 50 or 60 movie of mine. Um, I know what you're saying. A top 50? Damn, that's not much. I love a lot of movies, but I've never seen either the comet. Tom Eberhardt, I've never, never seen it. Which is around the same time as Shadow Chasers. But I, I do I do love, yeah, that the, Jonathan has the thing with the trains, which kind of, even though they're in the middle of all this, he stops to admire the trains. Benny is always right on it, keeping right on track, except when he's flirting with the former Miss Santa Maria. But Jonathan stops to enjoy the trains, and that leads to him bonding with the Phantom, and that leads to the final scene. And it, it's, it is, really is one of those episodes where... You sort of get the feeling at the beginning that whatever this phantom is, it's probably not a bad guy. And as you heard from the sound clip, eh, it's not a bad guy at all. It's just um I, I, I don't I don't want to ruin it all the way. Um But all of it leads to the final sequence where they have to sort of get the Phantom out of the galleria. Before um, the 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 guy in charge and his goons come and kill him, and they have to they have to get him out of there. And at least, yeah, the final scene on top of the uh, locomotive, which is really, I think quite moving. Uh, it's quite a moving scene, and the sequence with the train whistle and the bell. And I think I think it works. I think it works really well, and it always brings a tear to my eye whenever I see it, especially the Polaroid that that doesn't. Although no, I should, I, should. I won't I won't go overboard on the Polaroid, but um. But there's something about this. It's a it's a weird scene. I mean, this is directed by. So it's written by Peggy Goldman, who is one of the the script consultant script people on the show, and I think she does a good good job with it. I think I think it it deve- like like I said. I think it develops nicely as it goes. I um, I I don't think the shtick in the beginning, like Jonathan and the archaeological dig, doing that thing where he's like, my phone doesn't work. I can't hear you. Hello, my phone. Tapping his phone against the the cave wall seems a little. Even he doesn't seem convinced that anyone gives a, a crap or think that works. Um, and the first scene with um, uh, uh, Benny isn't is okay. Well, you heard it; it's okay. Um, and but it gets better as it goes. And it's it's tricky. I do I do wonder because I do like the characters, but there is something about like there are many Rockford episodes where you know they start off slow and then build. But I'm in it because it's Rockford. You know, maybe Angel's there. Maybe his dad is there. You know, maybe Gretchen Corbett is there. You know, and, and, but as much as I love Benny and Jonathan, them showing up at the beginning of this didn't pull me in completely. And a lot of the comedy is, um, is just shtick and is not terribly funny. Um, but in the end, it succeeds, I think. Uh, it's, yeah, it's one of those tricky things where really, if you only watch the first act or the second act, eh, you're kind of going, whatever. But if you get to the end, um, it's worked cumulatively it's worked. But then if you go back to the beginning and just watch the first act again, then it might not work as well. It's it's strange. It's strange. I'll will see if I come across another episode like this. I'll give you, I'll give you a shout on this, but that's sort of yeah, it's like I said, one of the reasons why I always had trouble with hour-long shows when I was a kid. Um, that's why I like like that's why I watched MacGyver because MacGyver would always MacGyver always had that opening sequence where they'd have a mini well not always but but would have them like a mini adventure and that would pull you in and then when it started you'd be like yeah and you'd be going and you'd like I liked Mac and and so like jeez so uh family oh it's directed by alan myerson alan myerson directed a ton of stuff um i know him best for his 1984 5 six, seven, eight, 1988 fil- film theatrical release police academy 5 assignment miami beach which i saw the saturday of opening weekend with my brother mike uh the theater wasn't that full i think the film did okay the theater wasn't that full Um, I don't remember laughing much. I remember we wanted to laugh. We'd gone to see four together and laughed quite a bit. But you could sort of tell by four that they were really... Sort of the realization that they didn't have they weren't really characters in the movies and they were just repeating jokes. And so it was just like, it was down to the quality of the repeated jokes. Now in a police academy five, they do try to vary it a bit. There are some new characters because Steve Gutenberg is in there. Now what I've read though, I thought Steve Gutenberg like left, like I'm out of here. But what I've read is that um, they got in such an assembly line with the police academies that they said, Steve, we need you back. And he was doing three men and a baby. And he said, no, I'm, I'm doing this. And of course, three men and a baby, what was the... One of the top, if not the top grossing films of like was it eighty eight, eighty nine, eighty seven, I forget when it was, somewhere in there. It was one of one of the top grossing films of that year. And so that's why he wasn't in. They replaced him with Matt McCoy, who's not that great in five, but is much better in six when they realize that he's not terribly funny and they have him be the smart guy who figures out the computer stuff and everything. Six is a six I think is an excellent police academy movie. Five is seven is the worst Mission of Moscow sadly. Five is the second worst. Now, does that mean it's not fun? No, it has its charms. It's a lot of fun. It's a decently structured sort of farce where the first act is setting everything up with the getting them to the convention of Miami Beach, the burglars, the diamond. Is the diamonds in the case? And switching the case? Then the second act is a mix of sort of just, you know, classic uh, goofing around on the beach jokes mixed with the robbers trying to get the case back and then the third act is the hostage situation that becomes the big chase it's actually structured rather nicely much like a Stephen kerbick's other police academy script six the problem i think is alan myerson i just i watched five and six with a friend of mine in in a row we sat in my living room with pizza and we watched five then we watched six we had a great time watching six five we sat there most of the time shaking our heads i'll be honest i think it comes down to um alan myerson's direction because when it's just straightforward scenes of people talking and such, he's got that. But when it becomes scenes of comedy or action, eh, I don't know. he seems to be like they're in the car the brief car chase. he seems to be a little too far away. He'd maybe be a little closer, you know Shooting an image of a car doing a stunt is fun, but if you can kind of soup it up a bit if you can kind of get in there a little closer if you kind of do something that makes it more exciting. And there are certainly some moments that he seems to handle the emotions better. Like the closing scene, I think he handles really well. But the car chase and some of the horror scenes are kind of shrugs. And that's the way the police academy films. There, there are sequences in the police academy films that I would have laughed hysterically at in the other ones. That I just kind of sit there shrugging at in five. So that could be his direction. He might not be. He might be a bit of a blind director. There were a lot of directors like that who you know just were job and directors doing their thing and you know this is shadow chasers it was in the toilets as far as the ratings went and like i said the, the episode works in the end i wonder if it had a better director who did the comedy better um, if it would have been better overall. I mean, I, I'll just take, just take one example, then I'll stop. I don't, I don't want to badmouth them because I do enjoy uh, Police Academy 5. Um, but the, like the sequence where Benny kind of sneaks up on Jonathan where he's on the escalator. The way the scene is shot is the scene is at the top of, on the second floor of the Galleria, looking down towards the escalator. And Jonathan is at the bottom of the escalator. And Benny runs up to him, grabs him. They start talking. They come up the escalator. They walk towards the camera. They talk and they pass by the camera. And the scene ends. It's great that he gets it all in one shot. The problem is that unless you know what you're looking for, Benny and Jonathan are too far away from the camera. So when Benny runs, you just see an escalator filled with people. And then all of a sudden you hear, hey, oh no, you, what's going on? And you're like, oh, what? Hey, oh, there they are. So what's supposed to be like, a, I'm sneaking up on you kind of thing is like, a, what's going on? It's all too far away. So that's one thing. And the car chases is, it's like, oh, a car chase and not the most exciting car chase. And sort of the chase sequence in the end, the chase sequence in the end is one of those where you kind of wish they would have just cut it out, done a little like Godard, um, little time jump and just taken us right to the end. And we could have skip some of the chasing around um, again. I like the episode it doesn't have flaws. Sure, yeah, yeah, of course it does. Do I have flaws? Oh, you bet your life. So, uh, do I have anything else on this one? I don't think so. I, I love, like I said, I, I think it builds towards a fantastic ending. I love the train whistle and the bell stuff, and this does have in it, like all the other ones, I mean, this this one kind of early on is like, this isn't a supernatural thing. This is something human. Something has happened here. But there is one of those supernatural how did that happen moments that's actually a pretty good moment that um i um isn't i i the, the first time I, I watched it twice f- to talk about this the first time i caught it the second time i forgot about it and when they mentioned it, i was like oh yeah that's right so it's i think it's nicely done so let me yeah let me wrap up the shadow chasers right here folks and um Where are we going now? Oh gosh, okay, where are we going now? We are hopping back 25 years and we are going, oh boy, can you believe it? We are going from San Maria, New Mexico to New Orleans, Bourbon Street, and we are going to the 38th, the penultimate episode of Bourbon Street Beat, and we are going to the episode Reunion. Listen to this.
0: Bourbon Street Beat!
1: Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New
2: Orleans.
1: Andrew Duggan. This
3: is the
0: Blues.
1: With Arlene Howell and Van Williams.
2: Produced by Warner Brothers. All right, folks. so 38 of Burma Street Beat Reunion June 27th 1960 directed by thank you again Mr. William J. Hull Jr. he directed the previous one I believe he directs the next one he's also director as I said many times of The Ghost of Drags of Apollo which was made a year or so before this which I love I love that they might have like like he he may have been like on the set of *Ghost of Drags of Apollo and someone was like yeah Bill we need you to get on the set of Burma Street Beat stat you got it let me wrap this up that's probably why Ghosts of Drags are probably such an odd movie to watch. Teleplay by W. Hermanos. Story by Nelson Gidding. And this one is about a young woman. We see a young woman at the beginning who... Jeez, I'm going to get this wrong. I think she, uh, she she escapes from the Sterling Academy for Girls or something like that. And I believe her name is Ellen, uh, And she is she goes into New Orleans because she's looking for her dad. While she's there, um, the head of the Sterling Academy uh, meets up with Cal, and and Cal recruits Kenny to try to find Ellen. Ellen, yeah, is looking for her dad. Uh, a kind of sleazy guy uh, shows up and um, tries to sort of kidnap her, pretending to be her uncle. She's never met her dad. She's just the dad provides money for her. She's never met the dad. There's a gangster named Big Tom Lanza who's on a boat with a goon out in the water, sort of surfside six way. Um, I'm kidding. Um and well, it could be. Yeah, now that I think about it. Um, not too far, not too far from it anyways. Um, uh and he is there and he learns about this gal, and he learns about this other guy who tried to kidnap her, and he suddenly takes a great interest in Ellen. And as uh they find Ellen and they have to mm, uh, I, don't, I don't want to give too much away, but suffice it to say that Ellen very quickly we learn her dad is Big Tom Lanza, who's a gangster. And he's sort of given her money and taken care of her, but she doesn't know who he is. And this is about, will the two of them meet up? Will they learn who the other one is? And will these other gangsters who are trying to kidnap her get there first? And can Cal and Kenny save the day? And I know what you're thinking. Didn't we just have this same plot line? Uh, at the beginning of the episode when we talked about Nero Wolf., nah, not quite, not quite, um, but it's, it's similar-ish in a way, but uh, yeah, Mitchell and I will dive right into this, so this is basically find Ellen, and then we find her, um, who's her dad, what's going on, keep her from the kidnappers, all this kind of thing, and it's the, it's Cal uh, and Kenny, which is awesome, always awesome, so let us uh, g- 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 have a little blast, and then uh, Mitchell and myself will discuss Reunion. Street Reunion, the penultimate episode of Bourbon Street Beat. When I first got this set of discs and started watching them and was maybe four or five episodes in i went to this final these final discs because we've got it's more or less four episodes of disc three on this last one and i saw reunion at the end of that i saw interrupted wedding and reunion and i thought of like kennedy kennedy that's kenny and melody together that's i thought of kenny i thought of melody i thought where could we be going that would get an interrupted wedding and we get a reunion And then I won't say what the name of the last episode is, but, but, um, and of course we're in the W Hermanos area, so we're nowhere near any of that. In fact, probably not even that near Bourbon Street beat really. Um, but I am here today with, uh, my good friend and the headmistress of the Sterling School for Girls, Mitchell Hadley. How are you, sir?
4: (laughs) Greetings and salutations. Uh, how are you doing, Dan?
2: I'm doing okay. I, um. You know we're still going strong we still got a full episode we still got two full episodes to discuss here so we can we can we can cry next time but this time we got to talk reunion and we got to talk about ellen and uncle ernie and i'm just looking at the names here big boy Lanza, and i just sure there was a guy named mookie and i made that up i don't know um uh, uh kooky no no um uh, and all kinds, all kinds of fun people. That's a course, different show. That's that's it's, argh, that's, <laughs> that's, um, that's the show that continued on after the, this season. Um, was Co- was Kooky there the whole time? He wasn't there the last season, though, right? Uh, Jack Webb. None of that's them were, right. apart from. That's yeah, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you're wondering what show we're talking about, folks, we're not going to tell you. <laughs> My three sons. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so, so Mitchell, what? Guess what did the you... show. Guess the show, please guess the show. We'll do that. We'll, we might do that again later on. Segue into a, another show, but not tell you what it is. Um, uh, Mitchell, what did you think of Reunion? Well, first
4: of all, it's got some recognizable faces in it, the, the character actors that you will recognize from other shows of the era. Uh, Bert Freed, who plays Big Tom Lanza. Bert Fried has been in... Everything usually, but not always, is a heavy. And he is kind of a heavy in this one, although he's got the proverbial heart of gold when it comes to uh, his daughter, uh, Diane Foster's in this. Uh, you've seen her in many things uh, of the time again. So it's got recognizable names. It's got a good. It's got a good uh, cast. And it's an interesting story. It's a Cal episode, and um, one of the things that I noticed about it right away is that you see, again, Cal has a very fine eye for the ladies, uh, notwithstanding the, some uh, some women he is more involved with than others, but he certainly, when it, when it comes to... Uh, attractive women. He proves his mettle as a detective because he certainly knows how to find them. And I think that, uh, that's, that's part of the charm that he has that, that runs all the way through, through the series. One of the things that I was very surprised by in this episode is that Cal's not wearing his hat. And I don't know if that has ever happened consistently through, an episode yeah. that's one of his trademarks is the hat, and uh, he doesn't have it on uh, at least um, through most of this episode. But um, we, we, he's um, got he he's been retained by this exclusive girls' school to find a runaway student who is, as it turns out. A very strong-willed young woman, and to be quite honest, a very annoying strong-willed <laughs> young woman. Um, I don't, I don't think that that is the um, the fault of the the actress being annoying or anything. I think that's the way the character is supposed to be. But Cal has trouble with her. Kenny has trouble with her. <clears throat> she, she has a very interesting outlook on things. And for about 58 minutes of the, of the episode, you have this mindset watching her that she is going to be in for a rude awakening when she finds out what life is is all about and then i'm not going to give it away at all except to say that in the dying moments of the final significant scene in the episode she says something that causes you to recalibrate many of those things she turns out to have had a much better idea of what was happening than we thought she was and it goes part of the way to redeeming her character i think uh, this I, I've mentioned that Kenny's in this episode, and contrasting it to the one we discussed the last time, that was uh, what interrupted uh, interrupted wedding, or as you would know it, uh, uh, nuptialis interruptus. I think that um, it's interesting that Rex was in that one all by himself, but in this one you've got Kenny and Cal, and they've kind of developed a little bit of a teamwork here through the the latter stages of this uh, series. Um, but we're seeing um, I think in, uh, in Kenny, we are seeing him maturing by quite a bit in these last few episodes. Um, he's now wearing a suit or a sport coat and a tie all the time. He's practically part of the firm he's not answering the phones anymore he's not there's comic relief anymore he's actually uh doing some work that could even be dangerous and uh he's being called mr madison by people which i don't think he's comfortable with <laughs> i think that he's still of the mindset you know the mr madison is my father i'm kenny um <laughs> and, and and then he mentioned that he had just graduated, and I couldn't remember. Maybe you'll remember. Is he? Did he just graduate from law school or college? I I think he graduated from college, and he's going on to law school. But I it could be that he's that he came to the series in law school, having graduated from college, and that now he's uh, graduating from law school. Do you remember? Oh,
2: no, I don't. I was. I always thought it was like he was going to school to be a lawyer. So I I, I don't remember if it was specifically law school or college. I thought it was more college than law school.
4: Um, well, I think, I think that's what I thought when I started talking about this. But I think in the course of saying this out loud, I've talked myself into the idea that he came to New Orleans uh, with, as kind okay. of a, a football player type jock and that we were led to believe he'd gone somewhere else to to college mm-hmm. and that he was now studying the law there. Okay. And, of course, we've seen a couple of academic settings and they've talked about him studying up on torts and things like that. So, yes, I guess mm-hmm. that uh, that Kenny is uh, a graduate of law school now, so whether he ever takes the bar or not uh, mm-hmm. is is hard to say, to say. but something that, that I'm amused by I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here forgive oh, no. me but something that I'm am- that I'm amused by here is that um uh and I may have mentioned this in a previous episode but as we are watching these episodes of Bourbon Street Beat I'm also my wife and I have been watching 77 Sunset Strip and um for two seasons Rex is a regular on Sunset Strip. And so we get the opportunity to see him in New Orleans, and then we get to see him in uh, in Los Angeles. And it's, it's very interesting, because he's still essentially the same character, although he never cooks in Sunset Strip. But there is an episode... I believe it's in the third season, late in the third season of Sunset Strip, where Rex is presumed dead, that he was killed in an explosion of some kind. Now, he isn't. Just want to let you know, he's okay. (laughs) But at this point in time in the episode, they think that um, he's dead. And so they're trying to get a lead on the last person that Rex met with, who is in Florida. And you may remember that Kenny's character and Mm. Van Williams get spun off into Surfside 6, which is the fourth of the four Warner Brothers detective shows. And so what happens is that that, uh, Stu Bailey, who is Ephraim Zimbalist in Sunset Strip, Stu calls down to the uh, Surfside 6 guys and talks to Kenny on mm. the phone about trying to learn some information about Rex. And so, obviously, at this point in time, I don't know, not having seen uh, Surfside 6 yet, I've been holding on to that until we're done with Sunset Strip, but... Um, I don't know where Kenny ranks in the totem of uh, hierarchy of the detectives, if he is a junior to Troy Donahue or a senior or what, but it's obvious that in this brief crossover, they let him take the lead because he's the one who has the connection to -hmm. to Rex. And uh, it's very interesting to see A slight again, an older, more professional, canny who is now a full-fledged detective working in an agency where he's possibly a uh, a partner in the agency. And so I I I find that interesting. And then to to take that a step further, um, we've also started watching The Green Hornet. Uh, which you did such a great job on in your review, (laughs) primarily based on your recommendation. But Van Williams is also in that series as the Green Hornet. And I'm getting that this is maybe seven or eight years that we've seen transpire now between seeing Kenny first start in Bourbon Street Beat and seeing Van Williams playing in uh, the Green Hornet. And I feel, to a certain extent, as if we've watched him grow up as an actor. And I suppose I'm getting a bit of a melancholy feeling, knowing that we're coming to the end of Bourbon Street Beat. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But and 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 also that The Green Hornet was his last big starring role on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it is uh, it is interesting nonetheless to see him pr- his his progression, and how different he is in The Green Hornet from how he was in Bourbon Street Beat. Mm -hmm. And you probably can see that as well.
2: I think I may have said when we first started off when I asked what was going on in that opening credit sequence where the camera where, where the Rex and Cal show up in the window behind uh, yes. Melody and, and uh-huh. Kenny and Melody looks at the camera and Kenny kind of has a look on his face like, Where am I looking? And he kind of like looks off to one side of the camera, which is really <laughs> awkward. And you can't imagine him as Britt Reed doing that. Britt is very right. assured and is very honest. He's superhero. You know, um and uh yeah i I do think there there is a, a fun there's a fun progression within Bourbon Street Beat, as you've said, and um the, I've only seen like three episodes of Surfside Six, and I saw them before Bourbon Street Beat, so I don't really remember what the dynamic was, but you can definitely if you compare Bourbon Street Beat to Green Hornet, you could you can see he's like he's grown up, he's matured as an actor, and uh, which is really cool. You know, I wish he'd had a had mm-hmm. a longer yeah, running is. show. Yeah, I wish he'd had a really long running uh, show. Um, but you know, a couple of cult shows ain't bad. You know, it's more than I got. No, I got yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, uh, and so um, it, it is funny because this is um, uh, well, no, I, I don't. I don't want to say that. We, um, uh, I was <laughs> I was going to give give something away there, and I, I didn't want to. Um, but I think as far as my thoughts on reunion are. Um, that it's um it's kind of a standard sort of um mobby kind of thing that has this this young woman at the center of who's kind of like um you know half like very determined self assured half liberty gibbet and um and I'll throw in one third annoying because there are moments when it's like oh dear and but the thing is um with with her with ellen there i i was trying to flash back to not when i was 16 because i know i was annoying but i was trying to remember gals i knew when i was 16 who were 16 and for everyone i i I can think of you know some that were just they were level-headed they were level-headed smart funny whatever but there was always like one or two gals i knew who were like um like the moments with ellen like I know my dad works for the government and that's why he can't tell me what he does because it's all super top secret and he's so important and it keeps cutting to Kenny and and Cal, and sometimes when it cuts to them they're like oh my gosh we hope you're not disappointed and other cu- times it cuts to them and you're just seeing like Bugs Bunny hold up a sign with a screw and a ball on it and just pointing at it <laughs> you know and it, that's perfect it's, yeah, and it's, it's, it's just like it's it's one of those things where um, as as long as you can keep in mind that she is 16 and she has spent most of her life in a school for girls um, the fact that she's out now in New Orleans and she knows that someone is af- I mean she knows that someone is after her I mean this guy tried to kidnap her this sleazy guy yep. you remember oh it's like I, you would sit on my knee and call me Uncle Ernie and all I could think of is Tommy and Keith Moon is Uncle Ernie yes. and I was like oh, oh god no no um and,
4: yep, I wrote but, down and, Smarmy for that yes.
2: scene. Yeah, and, and there there's just something where she um it's it's weird because I I like her but she does annoy me and you are right, there there is a moment right in the end where it just does one of those things where something happens and then you start to go back and watch certain scenes in a different way the second time through. Which is always mm-hmm. cool to see. It's almost like um this this isn't quite that but there's that classic um oh and I forget the name of it that classic Rockford Files episode's like Ernie the Explainer or something like that. Do you know that one? Where um there's um, like it's it's like the um, there's a movie studio and like diamonds and the French police are there and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening and um and it's one of those episodes where Slight spoiler. Cover your ears, Mitchell. Uh, spoiler for everyone. Okay. Not not much of a spoiler go, go. because there's a there's a lot going on in the episode. But it's one of those things where you get to the end of the episode, and I if I remember correctly, I haven't seen it in about a year or two. But Rockford basically is able to explain everything that happens, and then there's a confrontation with this guy who's like guy named Ernie. I forget what the character's name is, um, and he's like shot, and as he's dying. Rockford says to him something along the lines of, "Well, you know, we're so glad that we were able to catch this person because we know that they did this and they did that, and thank you so much for doing this." And he said, "Well, I wasn't doing that, and they weren't doing that. They were doing this, and they were doing that." And everyone standing around Rockford is like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, nothing. He just said is the truth." The and then he like dies before he can explain what the truth is. And it's one oh. of those things where, you, you there, there's an Ellery Queen novel that does that too, where Ellery, two-thirds of the way through the novel, I forget what the novel is, he figures out exactly what's going on and saves the day. And then, it cuts to like a year later, and suddenly he has a revelation, and he goes back to the person who actually did the killing, who he didn't prove did the killing the first time, and he re-explains the entire book and realizes that he got is the wrong person the whole time and um and so so it's kind of like this is kind of one a calmer version of that in reunion but it is kind of a lovely moment where when she reveals this thing you're kind of like wait let me go back and let me go back and have a look and and there are some nice little bits. Just like say like an in interrupted wedding, if you watch the bomb sequence and you look in the crowd, you can see Whit Bissell's character a couple times hanging out in the crowd, like on the edge of the screen. You know, this it's kind of a nice little twister rooney. Now, as you said, is she mm-hmm. annoying? Eh, yeah, she is annoying, but she's sixteen, so that's just remember what you were like. And it is lovely to see. Yep, and I'm a curmudgeon So yes, yes, there you go. And Kenny is all grown up, and and you think you you get the feeling almost, possibly at the beginning of the series that Kenny would have been more up for. Okay, we'll just go out for a drink. You know, when she wants to go out. Okay, we'll be okay. We'll just go out for a drink. Mm -hmm. But here he's very much like, nope, we're not doing it. We're staying put. nope, and he is he's matured very much, which is fun. Um. And there, there are some great – and I, I do like the way um, – you know, it's not the sting, but everyone sort of converges in the end and, and kind of cross paths yeah. here and there. And it's it's kind of nicely done, and then they all end up in this hotel room. And there's got to be, and you not not to spoil it, but there's some gunplay in the end. And Miss Sterling doesn't get killed, but she's in another room when it happens. And then there's a moment when she walks into the hotel room where there are now like three dead bodies. And you could only imagine what it was like. She she left the room five minutes ago. <laughs> Everyone was alive. Now there are these three bloody bodies strewn across the room. So whew, that, you, that wanna, was the you, you don't get that. you want to
4: say something like, I can't leave you alone for a minute, can I? <laughs>
2: <laughs> this doesn't happen every day at the Sterling School for Girls, folks. Trust me. Um, no. <laughs> and, and it's 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 funny because I think I think it's um it's a uh, as far as the W Hermanus goes, I think it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a nicely written episode. I think with the characters, probably some yes. of that has to do with Nelson Getting, who was the original author of it, because um, he wrote Beyond the Poseidon Adventure i love beyond the poseidon adventure it's exactly like the poseidon adventure except without as much suspense and it doesn't have any buildup because the the ship is already flipped and it's just basically people treasure hunting inside the ship going too far in and then having to get out so exactly like the poseidon adventure but without all that you know suspense to get in your way stuff just happens it's lovely um, <laughs> so 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 it's kind of it's kind of a nicely put together decently written um episode yeah. it's great to see to see uh cal and, and kenny working together i wish rex was in i really do um uh and it it has a it has a nice ending and, and a, it, it it's got a nice steady pace um and i, th- I think um <sighs> I, I guess as far as the flavor of Bourbon Street Beat, it has a little more flavor in it, because it is specifically this gal mm-hmm. going to New Orleans and wanting to, like, I want to go to the, the Absinthe city, yeah. House. Yeah, I want to go to the Absinthe House. And um, uh, and at one point, what did you think of the scene where um Rex calls the, uh, uh, or car, 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 just, I'm going to get that wrong the whole time. We're, we're 38 episodes in that wrong, and I'm still saying their names. And, and I'm still saying their names wrong. Cal When Cal calls up the um, the supermarket, and he gets the, <laughs> yes, guy, except he's like, yes, with like a Cajun accent. I don't do a Cajun accent, but but if you yes. imagine him, no, it's, right. yes, thank you for calling, or I don't know what it is, but. It's great.
4: And Cal gets this look, you know, he's talking squab, <laughs> all yes. the, these things that he's trying to get for dinner. Which, which, um, nice segue to this. Um, there's, I wanted to ask you about something that happens right at the end of this episode, sure. and um, we've already told you, we've already told you that Diane Foster, who's Marsha from the school, um, she doesn't get killed, um, mm-hmm. so. She, she and Cal are having dinner at the end of the episode and Cal is giving her a taste of something and mm-hmm. it falls off of his spoon and into her coffee cup and my question is do you think that was supposed to happen or do you think that was an accident and they just played with it
2: I, I can't tell because her, her laughter seems genuine to me she, she really seems mm-hmm. like she's kind of breaking up over it um, Now it could have been like That may have happened The first take And that was a second take To kind of maybe uh, Smooth it out or something but, but I do like the way He does it, and it It does It's nice I mean it is kind of A bit of the wah wah Sort of everybody laughs Kind of ending But it's done Cal um, does it really nicely I think When he sort of Leaves yes. and he spoons it out Because he's like He's making time with her You know he's just Saved her life More or less uh, you know, showing her three dead, bloody bodies, but stuff like that happens. Uh, but but you know, he 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 saved her life. You know, and now he's pouring her this 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 stuff, and and he's kind of looking in her eye, and he's, he he thinks he's got it right, but he's got the balance off, so he pours it in like a mug or something like that. And um, and I don't know. I mean, to me, it looks like yeah, that was either a um a mistake, and that that they made that the ending or or it was a mistake they maybe reshot and was like that would be the perfect ending rather than something they were doing maybe they were meant to kiss or something and they thought nah let's have him goof with the with the gumbo or whatever it is he made i think i think it's a kind of a sweet uh, and funny ending cuz it looks like after all the the craziness yes, of the past like after the craziness of the past day or two it's kind of a sweet way to end the episode and it's not as it's not as sort of uh, kind of rough as a lot of those dumb joke and everyone laughs at a freeze frame kind of things that you're used to from i don't know what american show was the first one to do that but um uh you know it it yeah i don't know that that was ever funny when they used to do that on dramatic shows but here it's charming not funny not really but it's charming so so i, I think it's a nice nice bit and i would bet the way it's done it was if it was written in there, they make it look very nice. I think almost like a like a mistake, and it was yeah. a mistake. So that's good acting. <laughs>
4: it, it's it, it's nice. I uh, I think it was a nice talk.
2: Uh, let's see what else do you have on this. I'm going to give my notes a scan.
4: Uh, I would just add a couple of things about Kenny because I don't really feel like I've talked about him enough in this episode um just to kind of uh, follow up follow up on the fact that he is still a, a a junior detective there's a scene where he is um guarding or supposed to be guarding Ellen and um she uh she gets away uh And uh, heads down the fire escape, or or down the back stairs, and he's able to um, track her down just in the nick of time. But uh, it it was interesting because I, I thought, well, I realize that you have a certain... Uh, appearance that you have to maintain but if he's there to protect her from being kidnapped wouldn't it make more sense for him to be on the couch in her hotel room than in a room across the hall and my wife said He's still got a lot to learn about bodyguarding, so yes. <laughs> so
2: he's
4: uh, he's yeah, still he, the junior uh, member of the firms. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's put two two locked doors and in the hallway was, in between him and him and the person he's bodyguarding. Yeah. That's, ooh, yeah. Whitney Houston would have fired <laughs> him in a Kenny. moment. Yeah, yeah, that's oh, our Kenny.
4: Yeah. You know, speaking of locked doors, uh-huh. there is. Um, a scene when when um, Cal gets uh, clunked over the head because somebody was able to walk into the office at night through an unlocked front door. And I'm wondering how the detectives make a living. I guess this answers the question, actually. They're able to make a good living as prominent detectives in the city because no one locks their doors at night.
2: Mm-hmm yeah even even ellen's uh hotel room door she doesn't lock it when she goes out yeah if i remember correctly yeah and and kenny just strolls on in you um she yeah it's like she she's she isn't very good at being bodyguarded and he's not a very good bodyguard yeah but you gotta learn it sometime. <laughs> and nobody dies. they don't neither of them die spoiler neither of them die so it's okay in the end um <laughs> what uh, you know? I, I will say i like i like ellen's white dress that she wears i'm not sure i'm a big fan yes. of her the coat she has on which looks like a balloon coat or something where you'd leap off a bridge and it would expand and you'd be able to float down to the ground do those exist is that a thing
4: <laughs> oh that's uh, fun. It, yeah, it's, it's fun yeah <laughs> so, um,
2: and, and we do we do say ellen is in a hotel room she's actually in like a suite there's like a big living room area, yes. and there's a big there's a hallway, and there's there, there's even a point in the suite when um um, Kel is fighting with Uncle Ernie where the the rug ends, where the camera is kind of back beyond the couch and the table and the rug ends, and I thought, huh, why wouldn't they have the rug, reach the um the wall. Hmm, I wonder why is Jerry yeah, well, Paris well. directing this is is this an episode of Happy Days <laughs> what's going on there guys come on <laughs> Although 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 the, the the rug it doesn't look too different from the floor so there's every good chance watching this on a TV in 1960 you wouldn't have even noticed that right. possibly po- possibly You're not uh, watching just... on
4: a uh, jumbo screen
2: <laughs> Yes exactly Um let's see I'm going to do one more scan of my notes oh, uh, do you have anything else on this one
4: no i think that uh just about sums it up it was a uh again uh, i think that uh it was a fun episode it was a good story and um it used our regular characters very effectively
2: Mm-hmm. yeah it teams up the guys each each get a gal they team up with and it's fun mm-hmm. you know and um and uh and yeah, like, like like I said, the only um the 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 only thing is if you can get over yeah, Ellen is sometimes annoying, but then she's annoying in that sort of you know teen way um, where you know you like I said you remember you were annoying like that not you Mitchell I don't I know you weren't uh, I'm, I'm saying oh, you no, the listener no. <laughs> the, you the listener I know Mitchell Mitchell was always this age he was never a teen Mitchell was born this age and we don't know what age Mitchell is he won't and, tell anyone
4: and annoying. Yeah, <laughs> <for you. laughs>
2: so, so that is reunion, the penultimate episode of the show and I got one more thing I just remembered ah. and it's one which it's one it's one quick scene with two thoughts that I had um, uh, uh, Uncle Ernie and Cal get in the fight. Um, uh, Ellen runs away and she's going down the fire escape and then uh, uh, Cal is chasing her and my first thought when he was chasing her down the fire escape was that it was gonna become that fire escape ch- chase from the in-laws where um alan arkin is being chased down the fire escape and there's just that huge shot of the side of the building with them very laboriously going down the ladder and going across the thing because they can't move that fast because they're on a fire escape this isn't as big as that but i thought of that um and but the thing is what is cal up to in the alleyway with Ellen when he like he could tell she's scared a guy's just tried to kidnap her and instead of being like please calm down he like rushes up to her grabs her arms and starts shaking her what, what is he doing? Is that not inappropriate? Should he be not doing that?
4: Well, it certainly it certainly looked that way to the police. Yes, that it was inappropriate. Yeah,
2: yeah it's just and by it's the a time
4: a... that he explained everything, it was too late.
2: Yes, yeah, and it's um it's it's just one of those scenes when you see it, you know, it's just one of those things where um may, maybe the original script ca- this came from, if it had detectives like this, maybe the detective was a little more hard boiled. You know, maybe it was like he caught her and slapped her or something, and said, "Calm down, girlie," or something like that. Um, and they didn't like yeah. tone it and say, "You know, I don't, I don't know that." Cal, I think I think Cal would probably, you know, if he's got this young woman cornered in the fire escape, he wouldn't rush up to her, grab her, and start shaking her. I think he'd stand at a distance and be like, "Okay, you know, I'm I'd maybe like pull out, you know, and say, 'I'm i I'm a detective,' or just do something to calm her. Rather than if there are what
4: recriminations to be had, they will come later on.
2: Yes, yes. So, so that that was Mm-mm. um that that's that's as strange as Cal's misuse of the oregano in whatever it is that that he makes, which apparently ruins the meal a bit. But I'm just going to leave that at that. Is oregano really? I like using <laughs> oregano. I guess you can use too much, like with garlic. I guess you can use too much. I know you can use too many onions, but like like oregano, I I don't know. I I thought, I don't know. So let's talk. Let's talking Oregon, with Mitchell no. and Dan. Yeah, <laughs> precisely.
4: <laughs> Ladies and
2: germs, Mitchell, had, and he's going to tell you about his books right now that are filled with jokes, just like the Big Joke Book. Yes, a Mitchell Hadley. Please, Mitchell, where are you? <laughs> What's going on?
4: The big, the big joke book by the big joke. Um, <laughs>
2: I am. At no the... no. <laughs>
4: Yes. you've heard of the galloping gourmet this is the shuffling gourmet um, <laughs> I can be found online at at uh, he's insanecom now I'm at um, it's about TVcom where I write about classic TV and you can also uh, check out my books at that website the the um, The Electronic Mirror is my newest book. It is a collection of essays on classic TV and American culture. And uh, if um, you're in need of a fine gift or just something you'd like to treat yourself to, it comes highly recommended.
2: Excellent. Thank you again. And uh, we're going to sign off here. Um, I, I don't know what's coming up next. It's probably great, whatever it is. But deep breaths, everyone. After 38 episodes, the next one, we're talking episode 39, aired on July 4th, 1960, the last episode of Bourbon Street Beat. Not, as mentioned, the last appearance of the characters for Bourbon Street Beat, apart from Cal for some reason, uh, but the episode, Teresa. I and have a we'll surprise about there. that, too. you got to tune in, folks. you got to tune in. Unless you want to do the surprise now, are you saving it for Teresa? <laughs> I'll save it. Okay. <laughs> And that's episode 88, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. <sighs> Deep breaths. The next episode, Bourbon Street Beat ends. If you've been listening to the show for a while now, Bourbon Street Beat has been a constant. Apart from when a, you know it got replaced by a, a Man Man with Dean Lerner, which I love a while ago. But now it's time. Bourbon Street Beat is ending with the next episode. So tune in join me um you know where to find me i'm not gonna over uh sell myself at this point here i just want us to um i want us to wrap it up i want you to be safe i want you to be cool and we will talk in a couple of weeks episode 89 be good yourselves everyone listen to this
0: (laughs) I'm Steve Bell. And I'm Kathleen Sullivan. Tomorrow we'll look at the biggest medical stories of the year. Pat George
1: with fashion ideas for New Year's Eve, plus Sam Waterston and Sting on Good Morning America. Tuesday countdown with the four tops. Barry Manilow and Tears for Fears as Emma Sands and Ted McGinley ring in Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. Now stay tuned for the Colby's next.